right, folks, I guess we need to get started tonight. Good evening. Good to have you all here tonight. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Covered chapters 4, 5, and 6 last week, and we'll probably cover at least three chapters tonight. I know, we're just looking right through, aren't we now? Oh, by the way, tomorrow, I mean, yeah, 1 o'clock this morning, at 2 minutes, two, 2 minutes after 1, 2 minutes and 3 seconds, it'll be 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Oh, okay. Thank you. I had to to get into the flow of that for a second. There you go. Cool. Well, let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our, our passages tonight. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to be here on Tuesday evening, and Lord, we just pray you would bless your word tonight and just use it to encourage our hearts. And Lord, especially as we go through the book of Revelation and we think about the the judgment to come, that Father, we would take every opportunity you give us to share the gospel with those who don't know Christ. And Lord, just to remind us how important it is that we just be a faithful witness, not only with our lips, but with our life. And that Lord, every day while we're out there uh, rubbing shoulders with uh, with people in this world, that Father, we would also just be faithful to Your Word, and and uh, that we would walk in Your Spirit, and just allow Your Holy Spirit to just totally guide and direct our lives. Father, thank You for bringing us all here tonight safely, and we just pray again for just a great time in Your Word, and we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter seven. Let me just quickly say, Revelation chapter four. The main thing was the throne of God. We saw there in that chapter that. How heaven is a place of praise and worship and how heaven's praise and worship should stir our praise and worship. We saw in chapter 5 the main focus was not the throne of God but the scroll that was in the one who was seated upon the throne. And we saw there that the scroll was containing the destiny of mankind, the destiny of the universe, the destiny of the world. And only God was able to hold the scroll and unloose its seals because he is the only one able to determine the destiny of the world. No creation, part of creation, can determine the destiny of the world. Only God could do that. And then we saw, beginning in chapter 6 last week, the unfolding of these judgments from the Lamb Himself. But remember, we talked about the fact that why the Lamb is important in, in rolling out these judgments is because it reminds us that the Lamb who is rolling out these judgments was also the one who took upon Himself the judgment for sin And it just is a reminder that these judgments that we read about and we study and all of that in Revelation uh, would not have had to take place in these people's lives had they accepted Christ as their Savior and allowed Him to take this judgment for them. And that's why the Lamb is shown with the sacrificial scars of His his, uh, gift upon the cross for us in the book of Revelation there. It's just that reminder. Now we come to chapter 7. So as the judgments are coming... We saw at the end of chapter 6 that instead of them calling out uh, to have the Lord save them, they were calling for these rocks and mountains to fall on them and crush them and consume them. But they know where these judgments are coming from and they know who is giving these judgments. Because at the end of chapter 6, they say, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So they definitely know who's... 
the, the judgment's coming from and where it's coming from. It's not a matter of that. It's just a matter of them uh, wanting to escape judgment, in a sense, rather than turn to the one who can totally, uh, in a sense, give them an escape from judgment. Then chapter 7 begins this way. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And I think this is just a reminder of how universal all of this in Revelation really is. Holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east who had the seal of the living God. He shouted out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given permission to damage the earth and the sea. Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now, just want to stop there a minute because this whole concept of sealing is something very important that I wanted to just spend a few minutes on tonight. A seal was just a mark of identification. And what God is saying here is, I'm going to identify those who are mine. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.19 that the Lord knows who are his. Okay, And even in John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. So there's that knowledge there. And so part of sealing someone is just a mark of identification. They are God's. But it's also a, an idea of protection and security. In other words, what God is saying by sealing these people here that we're going to read about tonight is that he's not only identifying them as his, but he is pledging his protection and his security upon these people. Now, this sealing or this concept of sealing is not new to the Bible or to the people of God. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, we're coming to the time of year, in fact, a week from tomorrow at sundown starts Passover. And in the Old Testament, the story of Passover, when God came to the people of Israel and says, the death angel is going to pass over the land of Egypt tonight, but if you take the blood of a lamb and you splatter the doorpost and the lentil of the door, my death angel will pass over because it will see the blood that is applied to the door. And that blood, in a sense, will be a seal, a seal of identification of who are God's people who are trusting in him and believing in him. And it was also then a sign of protection and security for those people inside because they trusted in the word of God. They believed what God said. They put the blood on the door and the death angel passed by. Now, we have a seal today. Every person in this room who is a Christian has a seal. And that seal is not the blood of the Passover lamb, in a sense, that being Christ, but it is the Holy Spirit of God who is our seal. In fact, keep your finger there in Revelation chapter 7 and go back to the book of Ephesians, if you will, because this is cool, this is important, and this is something that I wanted to spend just a few minutes on tonight talking about how God was sealing his servants in Revelation, but that was nothing new. In Ephesians chapter 1, look at verses 13 and 14, where Paul tells us that God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He says, And when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in that gospel, it's not, not enough just to hear it, we've got to believe it, and when we believe in Christ, notice, you and I who believe in Christ are marked with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit. And notice, the Holy Spirit then in verse 14 is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, 
The Bible is saying that every Christian is sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that seal of the Holy Spirit is a mark of identification. It's also our security and our protection. It is a pledge from God that I will, I will protect you. I will provide for you. I, I will be your security. And you'll notice there that Paul used a very good term to describe the seal of the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit is our down payment, the first installment, the deposit, if you will. Uh, the pledge. So in other words, what, what Paul is saying here is this. This is how cool it is. He's saying when you and I have the Holy Spirit, all that God has promised us in heaven and in glory is as good as there because we have the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit is just the deposit, that first installment that everything that God has promised us because we know Christ is going to come our way one day and that the Holy Spirit inside of us is that pledge, that first installment, that first deposit, or that down payment, if you will. It's just telling us, according to the scriptures, that God then has obligated himself, okay? God has obligated himself to see our salvation through, all the way from beginning to end. And that's something a lot of people sometimes have, you know, a struggle with, but that's what the Bible teaches, that God has obligated himself to see our salvation through from beginning to end. That's why Paul says, He who has begun a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Or as Paul says in the book of Romans, He who he's justified, he will also sanctify, and then he will also glorify. In other words, there is no doubt about it that the one who has been justified will be sanctified and will ultimately be glorified. Why? Because we have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. And God is obligated to see that salvation through to the very end. So we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And I believe that it's just another way also of saying it's a permanent thing. God's not going to take the Holy Spirit away from us when we are sealed. Because notice Paul's language here. We are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is a down payment of inheritance until the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Not to our glory, because we didn't have nothing to do with it. Okay? So I just wanted to share that with you, because hopefully that will be an encouragement to you. Secondly, it shows us that there's a precedent that's been set, that this whole concept of sealing didn't start in the book of Revelation, but was something that God really has done throughout history, where he has marked his followers... He knows who his followers are, even if we don't know who all the followers are. We know God knows who are his followers, who are his servants. And he not only knows who they are, but he has pledged, because of that, his protection, his provision, and his security. Now, if you go back to Revelation, you'll notice then that John says in verse 4, I heard the number of those who were marked with the seal. 144,000 sealed from all the tribes of the people of Israel. Now, a couple things. First of all, how does, how does, why? Okay, let's start with that. Why does God seal 144,000 Jews? 12,000 from every one of the 12 tribes of Israel. I believe we're going to find out later on in the book of Revelation that these are Jewish evangelists that God is going to send out into the world, in a sense, as worldwide missionaries during the tribulation to share the message of the Messiah. Because these Jews, 
have come to believe in Jesus as their Messiah. And now God is going to use them as missionaries to go throughout the world and to share the gospel of Christ. This is part of another reason why we believe that the church has been raptured at this point. Because God is not sending out the church anymore. God now, again, according to Daniel, has turned his attention away from the church because the church is no longer here on earth. And now has turned his attention back to Israel. And 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to be sent out into the world. Interestingly, 12,000 from each one of the 12 tribes. Now, only God knows who they are. Because back all the way to 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed by the Roman Emperor Titus, when he went into Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem, all records of Jewish lineage has been destroyed at that point. So that's why most Jews have no idea today what tribe they're from or what family they are from. They couldn't tell you because those records have been gone for thousands of years now. But God knows. And see, that's the cool thing. It just is a reminder of just the omniscience of God that he knows which Jew goes with which family and he knows exactly how that all all works. It just is a reminder, again, of the greatness of our God. And God here is saying that I'm going to send them out, they're going to be mine, I'm going to seal them, and I'm going to protect them through the tribulation so that nothing can happen to them. Now, I just want to throw this out as well. Some may say, 144,000 missionaries to go all over the world? That doesn't seem like a lot. Well, let me tell you. If you add up, according to mission agencies and mission boards and everything, if you add up all the missionaries today on planet Earth right now from all the different denominations and and what we would call Christianity, I'm not talking about non-Christian religions now. I'm talking about just what we would call Christian, Christian denominations, okay? I'm talking like Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, all that, you know, whatever. There are only 35,000 total amongst all the denominations today, 35,000 missionaries. So when God sends 144,000 Jews who have now come to know that Jesus Christ is their Messiah and they're on fire for God, trust me, the world can be turned upside down in a very short amount of time. And it is. Because notice here, in verse 9, that the Bible tells us, after these things I looked, And here was an enormous crowd that no one could count, made up of persons from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in long white robes and with palm branches in their hands. And palm branches is a sign of victory, my friends. And they're able to stand before the Lamb because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Because notice, I'm just going to skip just a few verses to put this in context. Notice verse 14 of chapter 7. John and one of the elders is having a conversation. And John is trying to figure out who is this enormous crowd that he's talking about in verse 9. And the elder tells him, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So we learn from this passage of scripture tonight that there are an innumerable amount of people who will be saved during the tribulation period. That even in the darkest hour of history when the judgments of God are being poured out, that in God's mercy and in God's grace, people are still being saved. 
and that many of them are probably coming to know Christ based upon the ministry of these 144,000 Jewish evangelists that have gone out into the world. All right? And I also want you to see then back to verse 9, that we get, you know, sometimes defensive about the fact that our we our faith is exclusive. You know, how can you just believe that there's only one way to heaven? My friends, that's not exclusive. Yes, there's only one way to heaven, but that way is open to anybody in the world. And so you can't say it's exclusive. In fact, the Bible says in verse 9, it's a reminder to us that there will be people from all over the world, from every nation of the world, even during the tribulation who are saved, from every tribe. So God is not an exclusive. God would be an exclusive God, as I said before here, if Jesus was the only way and only people in Italy would, would go to heaven. Okay? That would be exclusive. But God is not exclusive when God says, yeah, there's only one way to get to have a relationship with me, but it's open to any and everybody in the world who wants to come. And that's what we learn about here again in chapter 7. I'm just going to stop in just a moment, but let me just finish a couple thoughts of chapter 7. If you go back then to verse 10, you'll notice that these tribulation saints who come out of the tribulation are now in heaven, and they're shouting with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, to the one seated on the throne of the Lamb. It's just a reminder that one of the great characteristics of our God is that He's a Savior God. He is a Deliverer God. I mean, that's one of the things that sets Him apart. He wants to save. He seeks to save. Peter says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is a Savior God. He is a one who wants to bring salvation to this world and to everyone in it. And salvation belongs to our God. Then notice verse 11. All the angels stand up. And in a circle around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures we were introduced to last week, they threw themselves down, their faces to the ground before the throne, and they worshiped God with a sevenfold blessing. Praise, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and strength be to our God forever and ever. And again, we are just reminded in heaven... It is just unceasing praise, unceasing worship, and that their worship should stir our worship, and that their praise should stir our praise, because heaven is certainly a place of praise. Just a couple other things. Then you'll notice at the end of chapter 7, what are these tribulation saints doing in heaven? Well, notice verse 15. First of all, they are before the throne of God. Unbelievable. You're going to be before the throne of God, too, if you know Christ is your Savior. Because much of what Revelation talks about with other saints it, it can apply to all the saints of God, not just those who come out of the tribulation. We're going to be before the throne of God as well. And notice what else they're doing. They are serving Him day and night in His temple and the one seated on the throne. Heaven is going to be a place of service. Again, I've had people ask, what are we going to do forever? That's a long time. And then, well... Part of it, heaven's going to be a place of learning. We're always going to be learning more and more about God because God is an infinite being. There is no end to God. And therefore, we could spend eternity learning about God and never coming to the end of God. So heaven will be a place of learning. It's also going to be a place of service. That just like the angels, there's still going to be things to do, service to do, responsibilities to do. Remember, God promised his saints that we would rule and reign with him. And... Uh, Part of our responsibility in heaven is going to be determined by how faithful we've been to Christ down here on earth. And that's why it's important not just to know Christ, but to be living for Christ. 
Because part of our responsibility that God gives us for all of eternity is going to be based upon our earthly faithfulness. But I also want you, as we wrap up chapter 7 tonight and some thoughts on this, to see the very nurturing characteristic of God with his people. Notice, the end of verse 15, he's going to shelter them. Literally, he's going to pull his tent over them. And then the Bible says, they will never grow hungry or be thirsty again, because many of these tribulation saints who came out of the Great Tribulation suffered tremendous hunger and tremendous thirst. They also suffered from the heat and the the sun. And so the Bible says, and the sun will not beat down on them, nor any burning heat. Why? Because the Lamb in the middle of the throne is going to continue to shepherd them and he's going to lead them to springs of living water. It reminds us of the portrait of Christ in Psalm 23, one of the most famous passages of scripture in the Bible, our good shepherd. And then notice this, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a beautiful picture. It's almost like we're sitting on the lap of God, if you will. And that God has his arms around us. And as, as maybe the tears are flowing down their cheeks, that the Bible says God very tenderly, almost like a mother would to, to their child, to their hurting child, wipes away those tears from our eye. It's a beautiful picture of, of the nurture, of the care, of the compassion of God to his people. And especially in this context, of those who have had to go through the tribulation and had to maybe be murdered and suffered as they did because they did not accept Christ before the tribulation, but they did find him in his mercy and grace within the tribulation, and so they were saved out of the tribulation, and that's what John is seeing here in John chapter 7. Okay, I'm going to stop for a minute and catch my breath. Comments or questions on Revelation chapter 7. Cool chapter, isn't it? Next time you get a little down, just go back to Revelation chapter 7 and begin reading verses 15 and 16 and 17. Uh, to me, those verses are just very encouraging. How God will shepherd us, He, he will shelter us, uh, He will take care of us. He will lead us to the everlasting springs of water. Uh, he'll wipe away the tears from our eyes. Just a very tender picture of God. Uh, and just a wonderful picture of God. And isn't it quite a contrast between what we're seeing at the end of chapter 7 and yet what is taking place on the earth? And you have that contrast. That's, that's the contrast between those who know Christ, who have hope, and those who don't know Christ, who've rejected him without all hope. There is a huge contrast. You can't get more of a contrast than those with Christ or without Christ. And so that's why we need Christ and we need to be introducing others to Christ. Yes? Um, I have two questions. Okay. So the 144 after the church is taken up, these are these are people that stay that aren't Christians that become Christians right away. Yes, I believe that what has happened is that these Jews, after the rapture of the church, at some point early on in the tribulation, have come okay. to acknowledge Christ as their Messiah. Okay. That's why God seals them and will send them out into the world to share the gospel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why I always, I for some reason I always had this thought that the 144 was, um, like, like your real experienced Christians or, you know, like those that would be like teachers or pastors mm. or 
I don't know why, where I came up with that, but, um, okay. My other question was, I know Jesus and God, the Holy Spirit are, are one, but, um, I've always thought that, um, that Jesus was sitting next to God, but you're saying it's just one, it's just God, because you're, you keep referring to the lamb as just God, and I know God and Jesus are one, but I, I guess I thought that once Jesus went back up to heaven that there, there were actually still, like, two. You know well, what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Well, throughout like eternity, God, the Godhead will be distinct. And I don't believe that we will see God the Father, in a sense, because he is spirit, just as the Holy Spirit is spirit. I think we will see manifestations of his glory and of the Holy Spirit's glory, but I think the one that we primarily will see is, is going to be Christ, because Christ is going to have that glorified body that, okay, so you when know, you're talking about the white with. hair and, and, okay, so you're talking about Jesus. Right. Okay, yeah. okay. Yes, yes. Um, this kind of goes back to what we talked a little bit about last week, but you said there were 2,500 prophecies in the Bible and 2,000 have been fulfilled. Right. And then you said there were 30,000 promises in the Bible. What's the difference between a prophecy and a promise? A prophecy is something that God predicted that was going to happen but hadn't happened yet. A promise is like, uh, you know, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, or I'll, I'll shelter you, or I'll provide, my God will supply all your needs. Uh, you know, those are more the promises. They're not necessarily predicting something that's not happened yet. They're just God sharing with us the things that he has sort of obligated himself to do because of that relationship we have with him. Yeah. Aren't uh, the promises sort of conditional? If we do something, then he'll do something? A lot of times they are. Okay, not yes. always. Not always, okay. yeah. A lot of times it's based upon just his grace because as the Bible teaches, God even <coughs> sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And God okay. you know, sends the sun on the just and the unjust. So... There, there are those general even blessings that God sends throughout the whole world, whether we deserve it or not. And, and even we know as Christians, a lot of times we don't deserve it, but God gives it to us anyway. But yeah, there are some that are. If, if you know, especially if we're continuing to try to, you know, attain deeper and deeper in our walk with the Lord, there are certain things that we need to do in order to get closer to God. Obviously, part of that would be, and you bring up a good point, if I want to get closer to God, I've got to deal with sin, because part of part of that is if I'm not willing to confess my sin or admit my sin, then how can I get closer to God? And it's not a matter of being perfect; it's just a matter of confessing. Like the, the writer of Proverbs says, uh, "He that covers his sin, meaning trying to hide it, will not prosper; but he that confesses and forsakes his sin will find mercy." So there are those type of promises that are conditional. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, you said that, um, well, okay, people who become closer to God and spend their life trying to you know, be better people and be able to sin and all that. I mean, we're Christians. But then at the very end, even people who maybe spend all their life and never did anything, never accepted Christ, all of a sudden at the end, they get to come out and make believe. And, and then they get to go to heaven and they never even spent their life doing any of the things that we're doing. Right. So do they really end up in heaven in a different place than we do? No, but... Because, cause, 
otherwise, what's the what's the incentive? I mean, there obviously there's incentive to me because I believe in God. But what's the incentive when you try to you know to preach to people if they go, well at the very end all I have to do is just you know say oh yes oh my gosh I do believe in God and right. to heaven I go. Well, a couple things. First of all, they can't presume that they're going to have that chance at the end. <laughs> you know, some people might say, I'll wait till the end of my life. The problem with that is, if we're going to see even here tonight, is if you continue to harden your heart against the message of God, you're not going to have that opportunity. Most of the people who end up on a deathbed confession weren't people that, that totally turned God off throughout their life. They were people that maybe it was like one of the few times they'd ever heard the gospel. So you can't presume that you're going to have that opportunity if you don't know God. But to answer your question of what what is the motivation there, I, I think of two immediately. One is part of the joy of, of knowing Christ and living for him is uh, looking around when I get to heaven and seeing the lives of other people that God has used me to impact them. And so those people don't have that. They, if, if, if they've lived their whole life in a sense for themselves... And then towards the end of their life, they accept Christ. Part of what we're going to have that they won't have is, as Paul said to the Philippians, when we study Philippians, you're my joy and my crown when I get to heaven. So that when Paul got to heaven, all these people from the city of Philippi, he could, he could look at them and go, you know what? They're here because God used me to bring them here. And, and they grew in their relationship with Christ because God used me in their life. They're not going to have that privilege. They're not going to have that joy. They're not going to know the joy. And to me, I don't care whether you're a pastor or whether you're just a Christian, the greatest joy that I can have on this earth is knowing that God is using my life to impact another human being, another eternal soul. I don't think it gets any better than that. So those people won't have that. And the second thing is the Bible does teach that God does reward those who are faithful. So that... They'll go to the same place, heaven, but but there's degrees of reward in heaven, just like there are degrees of punishment in hell. So that when we get to heaven, all Christians are not going to be rewarded equally. Because all Christians will have lived a different level of faithfulness after they came to know Christ, and God will reward them accordingly. And that reward, again, this is very important. That reward is not primarily, oh, a bigger mansion, you know. That's not primarily the reward. The primary reward, and this is the real motivation, is that God is going to base my eternal responsibility and position of service on how faithful I was. So, again, you think about it. If I live even to be 100 on this earth, compared to eternity, it's a, it's a grain of sand. It's nothing. So, you know, it's just like, you know, what you teach your kids, you know, like, you know, you want them to go to school, you want them to get good grades, you want them to go to college, get a good education, so that what? So you can set yourself up for a good career the rest of your life. Well, guess what? We don't use that same mindset spiritually to tell Christians, guess what? This earth is in a sense a proving ground. And how faithful we are on this earth is going to determine not just how we set ourselves up for 40 or 50 years, but how we set ourselves up for all of eternity. That's a long time. And that's another reason why I want to be faithful. Because I want God to grant me a responsibility that is equal with how faithful I've been down here on earth. And that's what he'll base it on. 
Because Jesus said throughout his ministry, if you've been faithful in this, I will give you this. In other words, it's just like a good parent. You you allow your children, however much responsibility they you feel that they have proven that they can handle. And if they can handle this much responsibility, guess what? A good parent's going to let the rope out a little bit more and give them more responsibility. As long as they can keep handling more and more responsibility, a good parent's going to keep letting them have more and more responsibility. Well, God's sort of the same way with us. He's looking at us and how we live our Christian life, and he's saying, okay, Jeff, you have proven that you can handle this much responsibility, so guess what? I'm going to give you a little bit more responsibility. And then when you prove you can handle that much responsibility, I'm going to give you a little bit more responsibility. Because again, God wants us to expand our territory for him, prayer of Jabez, to, to expand our horizons. To become more and more and more fruitful. Remember, Jesus said in John 15, And this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so God wants us to be very fruitful. And so God is going to, to put us in situations where we can prove our faithfulness, and then he's going to give us more and more and more. Let me just use our lead pastor, Pastor Lynn, as an example of that. Way back when he started the church, the church was what? A handful of people, 25, 30 people. And I believe that Lynn is just a great example that... God saw that he could handle that many people, and so he kept bringing more and more people to his under his shep, under shepherding, if you will, because Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. Lynn would be the under shepherd, okay? And so he keeps bringing more and more people because Lynn keeps proving himself faithful. And so God is going to keep bringing more and more people to this church as long as Lynn and the leadership and the people of this church Prove, God, that we're faithful to the people you bring us. Now, if God brings people to this church, and we as a church prove that we're not being faithful, then guess what? God won't bring any more people here. It goes back to the messages we've talked about in Revelation 2 and 3 about the message to the churches. God was no longer going to bring more and more people to that church because they had proved themselves unfaithful. They could not further handle any more responsibility. In fact, they were... Messing up the responsibility they had. So God, obviously, like a good parent, not going to put more responsibility on somebody when they can't even handle the responsibility they've already got. And that's the way our Christian life should be. You as an individual Christian should desire for God, for you to be faithful in whatever God has given you, no matter how big, no matter how small, just like David. David proved faithful and in, in being a good shepherd. And so God said, okay, you've been a good shepherd there with the real sheep. Now I'm going to make you a shepherd of my sheep, the nation of Israel. And he proved uh, faithful when he stood up to Goliath when nobody else would. So God gave him a little bit more responsibility and so on and so on and so on. Now David got to a point in his life where he made a mistake, pretty big mistake. And God had to pull then some of that responsibility back. But God will lay out more and more responsibility to us when we prove we can handle it. And so that's, again, another great incentive to be faithful to God because I believe with all my heart that my responsibility in heaven will be based upon my faithfulness here on the earth. What does that mean? Even during the, say, the Great Tribulation, like, it says countless people will come out of it victorious. Is that 
Yeah, most of them in the tribulation see won't have a chance to impact too many people because of the the time that they're living in. Uh, now, I, I you know I believe that God will reward to a degree these hundred and forty four thousand who are faithfully going around the world sharing it. But again, not to the same degree as a Christian who's lived seventy years of their life faithful in a sense because there was that there's that difference there. But yeah. Exactly. They've got to give up their life during the tribulation. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, again, they're going to be sealed and protected supernaturally, but then there will be a time where, uh, you know, how that's all going to take place, I don't know. But, yeah, there will be a time where God will pull his protection back from them, as we're going to see that he does with the two witnesses coming up in chapter 11. Yes? What kind of responsibility? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay, next question. I, You know, I, my prayer and hope is that for 22 years I have tried to faithfully teach God's word, and so I don't, I don't know. I mean you only, but every, every believer in you, what kind of responsibility do you think God would have for us? I think that, again, we're going to reign with Christ and, in a sense, rule with Christ, and, and there's going to be responsibilities that even though we're in sort of a different dispensation, if you will, and I don't like to use that word because sometimes that can conjure up negative images with certain folks, but we, we really will be that, you know, some kind of responsibility, I, I don't know what that is, whether it's like, okay, I'm going to have you oversee uh, this city, you know, maybe maybe you'll be the mayor of Phoenix in the New Jerusalem or something. You know, I, I don't know. But I think to a sense that, you know, we're going to be co-regents with Christ. So Christ is going to rule in a sense, but he's going to allow us to sort of co-rule with him, if you will. That's what it means. So that's sort of cool. It's like God's going to put us in these positions of responsibility based upon our faithfulness here. Yes? Unless we're, our choice is to retire. No. <laughs> no, no, seriously, my question, if you can follow me on this. You were talking earlier about the rewards of right. and the responsibility that will be ours as opposed to the impact that we have for faithfulness. Well, when it says there will be no tears, no sorrow, da 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 when we get to heaven, when we get there and see that there is not, let's just say, some immediate member of our family there, does that say that we were not faithful or that they did not respond? Where are you dividing between our responsibility as opposed to the impact that we have? Even though we're faithful, we may not have the impact that we would like to have. Well, yeah, I, I mean, that's a, good, that's a good question. My responsibility, for instance, is to share the word. My responsibility before God is not what's the response of the people. But, just like with the Philippians, say, going back to the Philippians and Paul and their relationship, the Philippians would say, we grew so much in our relationship with Christ because of this man and his ministry. So, in a sense, they're testifying to the fact that God used Paul in their life. And so, I don't think it's going to be us standing before God trying to, you know, tell God how how it was. I think other people will testify, and God knows, you know, because God knows everything, that God will know how many people, uh, lives, uh, we made a positive spiritual impact on. And the ones that we wanted to, that they were close to that as well. I don't think God's going to hold us responsible for that. Because again, that's not our that's not our responsibility. We can't make someone, as much as we would like to, turn to Christ. 
We can't even make a Christian more motivated in their walk with God. That's between them and God. But God can use us to try to encourage them and motivate them and sort of that Proverbs 27, 20, uh, 27, 17 prints about iron sharpening iron. Uh, I think we can be that in other people's lives. And so God will take all that into account, I believe. But so yeah, then, that's... So then when we get there and there, we have full knowledge that somebody that we knew or close to whatever is not there, how did we not have sorrow and tears? You know, Alice, the only way I can answer that is God loves them even more than I do, and and yet he doesn't spend all of eternity grieving, in a sense, over that. I just think that there's just going to be a totally different understanding that God's plan is a perfect plan, and part of his plan is eternal judgment for those without Christ, and we're going to be okay with that after we get there. on this side of heaven, it, it's hard to, to wrap our minds around that. But when we get there, one of the things that we're going to re- be reminded of is that, you know, we say, well, I love those people, but God loves them even more than we do. And, and, and so how that all reconciles in our mind, you know, I don't totally know, but I just know that it is, it is going to be reconciled. In some way, we're not going to spend the rest of heaven or eternity in heaven bemoaning that because heaven's going to be a place of praise and joy and worship and stuff and somehow some way we're going to be able to wrap our minds around that then that we can't wrap our minds around now i know that's not a very good answer but that's the best i can do yes um you've talked a couple times as if we're going to know everybody like that close like a family a relative and isn't it supposed to be different whereas Everybody has, a, you know, like a sense like you know everyone almost like a big family, but it's not like a relationship here. Right, only because there everybody will love each other equally, where here we don't. Uh, and that's what makes it different is, you know, there there's going to be perfect love. And well, first of all, it's not like not your husband love. when you go to... Right. I, I think that in heaven we will know our husbands and wives and children and all of that. And I think there will be that knowledge there. It's not like God's going to erase that from our memory and we're going to go, who are you? I never saw you before. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be that. But again, going back to sort of the, this whole thing too, mm-hmm. it's going to be different. It's not going to be the same because in heaven, I none of us are going to love anybody any less or any more than we love anybody else. Where right. here we do, based upon relationships and family situations and how people treat us and all of that. Mm-hmm. Even as Christians, we love people sometimes conditionally. Where again, there it's going to be a perfect, unconditional love for everybody. And so everybody's sort of going to be on the same plane. And so there won't be that, you know, oh, I love this person more than I do that person. It just, it won't, it won't right. exist in heaven. Yeah. And again, don't forget, it's okay to struggle through these things, but some of we just have to wait till we get there, because again, we're trying to understand heavenly realities on this side of heaven, and we're just not going to be able to totally wrap our minds around a lot of this, and that's a lot of the reason why I don't spend time with a lot of, uh, you know, going down those trails, only because I really can't give you even a, a substantive answer as far as how that's all going to wash out. Not that we shouldn't talk about it. And not that I don't want you guys to, you know, ask these questions. I don't mean it that way. I just mean, you know, that is part of the struggle here on this side. But one day, 
I think we're gonna we're gonna see it in a different light. Yeah. Now notice in chapter eight, we come to chapter eight. Something very interesting happens before the seventh seal because last week we looked at the sixth seal judgment just very quickly and saw where God was beginning to pour out judgment upon the earth. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, again, try to picture this. Throughout the book of Revelation up to this point, one thing has been totally consistent, and that is that heaven is this place of unceasing, unending worship and noise, if you will, and and just praise of God all the time. As we've seen already, the angels never rest day and night. Holy, holy, holy. I mean, it's just a place of constant praise. So when the Bible says that there's going to come this point in history, and this is the only place we know that this is existing, where even in heaven, there's no noise for a half an hour. That's going to, that's going to probably seem like days. Because probably from the time the angels were created to this point in history, Heaven has never been silent. It has always been filled with the praise of God. And now, it is just reminding us of the soberness and the solemnity of what is about to take place. When the Bible says, before the Lamb opens this seventh seal, there is going to be this pregnant pause, if you will. Almost an expectation, an an anticipation of what is about to come. Now again, I don't want to take a lot of time because you can read these judgments for yourself. And I'm just going to tell you, they're horrific. They're terrible. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. You read down through chapter 8, it's terrible. Okay? It's going to be awful. Many, many, many people are going to die in these judgments, as the Bible says. But I do want to focus on this last judgment at the beginning or I should say the the judgment at the beginning of chapter 9. The fifth trumpet judgment. Because you'll notice here too, hopefully you followed this, that there were seven seals. Okay? They were the first seven judgments. But then the seventh seal opened the seven trumpet judgments. Okay? So in other words, the seventh seal... I can't even spell it. I'll be able to spell in heaven. No. Um, the seventh seal then begins the seven trumpet judgments, and then when you get to the seven trumpet judgments, the seventh trumpet then opens up what's called the seven bowls, which are the last judgments. All right. So there's, you know, just for the sake of, you know, argument in a sense, there's 21 judgments. Okay, three sevens. All right. There's seven seals, seven trumpets seven bowls in the book of Revelation, and that's the order they go in. And the seventh seal then will open the seven trumpets. So we pass through a lot of the trumpet judgments that you can read for yourself, but I wanted to get to the fifth one tonight and just touch on it for a few moments. Because this speaks about this demonic army that is going to be unleashed upon the world. And I just want to touch on this for a moment. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. He, so it's a person, was given the key to the shaft of the abyss or the bottomless pit. Now we know that this place exists because back in the Gospels, when Jesus was driving demons out of a person, 
You remember what the demons said? They said, Jesus, send us anywhere, just don't send us to the abyss, the bottomless pit. And so remember, he sent them into the herd of swine, and they fell down the thing. Why? Because we're going to find out in the Bible that this bottomless pit has kept for many thousands of years this demonic horde that will one day be unleashed upon the earth that has never been loosed for a long, long time. You see, one of the things we learn as you study what is called angel in theology, which is the study of good angels, Gabriel, Michael, and bad angels, Lucifer, demons, all that, is that there were some demons who were allowed to go free under the sovereignty and providence of God, but they were allowed to go free. Jesus had to cast out a lot of demons during his ministry. So we know that God did not chain all the demons up. But there's a group of demons that have been chained in the bottomless pit for a long, long time. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But I just, just wanted to throw that out. Okay? Then notice, he opened the shaft of the abyss and smoke rose out of it like smoke from a giant furnace. That's because this hadn't been opened up for a couple thousand years. The sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then out of the smoke came locusts on the earth. They were given power like that. And this is why, because we live in Arizona. If, if anybody knows scorpions, we know scorpions. And it's very interesting here that in this passage of scripture, he describes their torture to that of the sting of a scorpion. Because he says, notice, they were given power not... Not that they are scorpions, notice, like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told, they were told, they are some kind of being. They really aren't locusts, okay? They weren't locusts that were existing in this bottomless pit. They are some kind of demonic army. They were told not to damage the grass, green plants, trees, but only those people, notice, who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. Now again, God seals his people. He identifies them. He protects them. He, uh, he is their security. But just like God, Satan always has a counterfeit. And that's why in the book of Revelation later on, we learn about the mark of the beast, which is a counterfeit of this seal that God has already placed upon his servants in the book of Revelation. God did it first, but Satan always has the counterfeit. And we'll study that more later on. The locusts were not given permission to kill these people on the earth, but only to torture them for a, a limited amount of time, five months. And their torture, notice again, was like that of a scorpion when it stings a person. Now, I've lived here a year and a half. I've seen many scorpions at my house, but I've never been stung by one. I don't want to either. Based upon this, it must not be very pleasant, okay? And just a couple other things. In those days, people will seek death but will not be able to find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. No death at this time. God says, nope, not going to die. I mean, people even wanting to die, they won't be able to kill themselves. They won't be able to kill themselves. Now, some people look at this as going, boy, that's that's really, you know, you know that's going to be torture. But don't forget something. You've got to balance out some things. God is also taking the possibility of death away from people because they could still turn to him. If they kill themselves, 
Then they go into eternity. So by taking death away at this point in the tribulation, he's also in his mercy and grace actually allowing some of these people a chance to come to know him so that they don't kill themselves without him first. Now, I want to go back to a couple of passages of scripture that talk about these demons who are chained. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and then Jude 1, verse 6. 2 Peter 2, verse 4. I'm sorry, 2 Peter 2, 4. 2 Peter 2, verse 4. And what I want you to see here tonight is this. The Bible clearly teaches that there are, in God's economy of demonic, the demonic realm, there are demons who are confined and have been for quite a while, and there are demons who have been unconfined throughout history, like the ones that Jesus dealt with when he walked the earth, and there are still demons who roam around the earth, who oppress people, who possess people, and whatever. There are still demons. And we, we read about these confined demons in two places in the New Testament, in 2 Peter 2.4 and in Jude verse 6. Notice 2 Peter 2.4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them into hell, literally Tartarus, literally abyss, bottomless pit, you name it, same place, and locked them up in chains in utter darkness, notice why, to be kept until the judgment. Now a lot of people interpret it as, oh, the, the ju their judgment. No, no, no. The judgment that's going on in the book of Revelation when the angel comes down and releases these angels who've been confined from the bottomless pit. Then turn over to Jude chapter 1 and look at verse 6. There's only one chapter of Jude. It's the book right before Revelation. Notice Jude says to his people, and, and he knows that they already know about this, that this was, this was a common knowledge in those days. You also know that the angels who did not keep within their proper domain or boundaries, but abandoned their own place of residence, he has kept in eternal chains and utter darkness, locked up for the judgment of the great day. Okay? So, you have this problem, if you will. Okay? And we're not going to take a lot of time with it, but I just want to throw this out to you because it's an interesting study. And if you ever want a great book, the best book, that was ever written on angels, meaning good angels, bad angels, demons, whatever, is a book called Angels, oh, duh, <laughs> Angels, colon, Elect and Evil, by a man named C. Fred Dickinson. He taught at Moody Bible Institute for, I think, 30-some years. You can get this book, Angels, Elect and Evil, at Amazon for under 10 bucks. I would, if any of you are interested in the study of angels, I would recommend this book. It is the best book that's ever been written on angels. Whether you're talking about the study of Lucifer, Satan, all the different demonic realms, whether you're trying to understand, you know, <laughs> the good angels and all the different things, it is an excellent, excellent, excellent resource. But anyway, back to this. Why did God allow some demons to remain unconfined throughout history? And why, clearly, did God chain some demons, according to 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6, 
up. Well, again, I don't want to take a lot of time, but if you go back to the book of Genesis, all the way back to the book of Genesis, you find that there were a group of demons who had fallen with Lucifer, who had, as Jude puts it, God had given them some boundaries, just like he gave Adam and Eve some boundaries. Here's where I'll let you go, but if you go outside of that, guess what? And these angels went outside of the boundaries of God's providence. Literally, if you study it, what they tried to do, and I think obviously under the direction of Satan, they were trying to completely wipe out the messianic line. Because back in Genesis, remember, God promised that when Adam and Eve fell, that there was going to come a Messiah through an earthly line. Well, Satan's very intelligent. So Satan figures, if I can contaminate humanity, then guess what? Jesus can't come. Because the line that the Messiah would have come through would have been totally contaminated. And isn't it interesting? And not that God ever lost control or anything, but it isn't it interesting when you think about it that God got down to one family on earth to redo everything that all the other families of the earth were wiped out. There was only one family that God started all over with, and that was Noah and his family. And primarily, one of the reasons was because these demonic forces, through a relationship with earthly women, and there's debate exactly how that all came down. I'll let you debate that between you and yourself. But that there was this union between these demonic forces and these earthly women that caused an offspring of giants to appear upon the earth. You read about it in Genesis chapter 6. Exactly. I believe, and this is the only biblical explanation that I could ever give as to why then God confined certain angels and why he left most of them unconfined, is these demons who were involved in trying to disrupt the earthly line of the Messiah, according to 2 Peter and Jude, after this, were confined to the bottomless pit until God lets them loose in the book of Revelation. Now again, I'm going to let you study, and that's not primarily why we're here, is to study demonology and all of that, okay? But I think it's very interesting, and I think it's something that you're going to have, you know, when you come across these verses, you're going to have to come up with some kind of biblical reason of why certain, most demons are unconfined, able to roam around the earth and do, you know, their evil things, and why some demons are confined and not able to roam around, you've got to come up with some reason for that, other than, well, God just felt like some of them needed to be, I mean, you know, and I believe the Bible does give us the reason, back even in the book of Genesis. But I, I tie all that together because I believe that these confined demons then are this demonic horde we are reading about in Revelation chapter 9. And just a couple other things. You'll notice that if you go back to Revelation 9, I'm going to wrap it up here in just a moment, that the locusts looked like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were something like crowns similar to gold. Their faces looked like men's faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like iron breastplates. And the sound of their wings was like the noise of many horse-drawn chariots charging into battle. They have tails and stingers like scorpions, and their ability to injure people for five months is in their tails. And now notice this. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek Apollyon, and it simply means destroyer. 
You know who's called a destroyer in the Bible? Satan. And I believe he is the angel that opened up the bottomless pit. Again, under God's permission, he is the destroyer. And here's what I want to point out as we wrap all this up tonight. And we've, we've thrown a lot at you again tonight. Always keep this in mind. God is a Savior God, wanting to deliver, wanting to set people free. In total contrast to that is this being over here we call Satan, Lucifer, call him whatever you will. The Bible calls him the destroyer. And he is out to destroy men and women and young people's lives. That's what he's all about. And that's what his demons are all about. They are out to destroy people's lives. Now, don't be afraid of them. The Bible says we don't, we don't fear them, we respect them, we understand their power and all of that. But the Bible clearly says if you have Christ, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We don't need to fear demons or Satan. We do need to put on the whole armor of God to stand up against the schemes and strategy of the devil. We cannot take him lightly. We do need to remember that he's like a roaring lion, Peter said, who's always going around seeking whom he can devour and destroy. And we need to respect that and we need to know that, but we don't need to ever live an hour of our Christian life in fear of it because Christ is so much greater than Satan ever even could be. There's just no comparison. Jesus is the creator Satan is powerful. He is still part of the creation and the created order. There is no comparison. God is so far, and we have God. And we have the Holy Spirit residing in us. And God has given us everything as a Christian we need to stand up against the devil. That's why we don't need to fear him. That's why we don't need to, you know, wring our hands, oh man, I'm, I'm worried about what the devil is going to do to me. No, you, we don't need to do that. Because God has supplied us with everything that we need. I simply point this out because, again, you see that when the church is out of the world and when Satan truly begins to work in this world and whatever, that literally, as we say, all hell breaks loose. Well, literally, the bottomless pit is opened and this demonic cord is going to be let loose upon the earth and they're going to just be a terrible, terrible judgment upon the earth. I want to point this out, and then we'll stop for any comments or questions. If you read down through chapter 9, you just read more and more about the judgment of this demonic army. But I do want to end with this thought tonight. Notice again in verses 20 and 21, these very sad verses. The rest of humanity, who had not been killed by these plagues, did not repent of the work of their hands, so that they did not stop worshiping demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk about. Furthermore, they did not repent of their murders. You think there's a lot of murders now? Wait till the tribulation. And of their magic spells. Literally the word in the Greek is pharmakia, from which we get the word pharmacy from. And what it is implying is that a lot of, of what we call magic and all of that is also tied to drug use. And there will obviously be, you think there's a lot of drug use today in the world? There's going to be even an increased amount of drug use and magic spells during the tribulation time. Then, of their sexual immorality, the word there in the original is pornea, where we get the word pornography. 
pornography from. There will be unbounded illicit sexual relationships during the tribulation and of their stealing. No regard or respect for other people's property or anything. This will be it. Now, the reason I point this out is I want us to realize, again, God wants to save these people. And God would save these people. All they have to do is repent. But the Bible says they choose not to repent because, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, they love the darkness rather than the light. And instead of giving up worshiping demons and idols and murders and their drugs and their sexual immorality and their stealing, rather than give up that kind of a lifestyle, no way. I'd rather die. I'd rather go into eternity without Christ. So a lot of them rebel and then do it more. Yeah. Because what we learn in the Bible is this, and this is how we can apply this passage to us. Because it's like, I want to bring this down to a practicalness for us today, and it's this. The reason these people are reacting this way is because they had developed a hard heart. A hardened heart. And the Bible warns us, even today, of developing a hard heart against God. And that's why even for those of us Sitting here, we must be careful that we do not become hardened when God speaks to us. How do we become hardened when God speaks to us? Whether we're a believer or not a believer, when every time God speaks to us, we turn Him off, we can start to become hardened. And the Bible says we can become like what Paul pictures in 1 Timothy. We can become like a piece of cauterized skin or skin that is has been burned and just has no feeling in it. And that's what can happen to a heart whenever we hear what God says and we go out and just turn it off. And after a period of time of listening to God and turning it off and listening to God and turning it off and listening to God and turning it off, our heart can become hard. And when God speaks, we no longer respond because our heart is as hard as a turtle shell. God wants us all to have a soft heart. A heart where when the seed of his word is thrown on that heart, it can, it can sink down and it can do the work that God intended for it to do. But in order for us to stay soft, in order for us to stay sensitive, We've got to respond to God when he speaks to us. Because if we don't, then that hardening sort of... And you know what? The same word that's used for hardening is that same word in the physical realm that's used for the hardening of the arteries. It's the same process. How the arteries get hardened over a period of years, guess what? Our hearts can go through that same process of being hardened after weeks and months and years of just turning God off. Sort of like a child does when their parents are talking to them. I don't want to hear you. Don't you know? I'm not going to listen. I'm not listening. You know. Eventually, it just guess guess what? We don't. And God could even, even though He won't, God could even scream, and it doesn't matter. Anymore. These people did not repent because their heart was so hard that even though they were seeing all these terrible judgments and what was happening on the earth. 
They clung to their sin rather than turn to their Savior. How sad. How we can apply this, though, is just us saying, you know what? I realize I'm not going to be part of this, but I do have to be careful that I keep my heart sensitive to God. And when God speaks to me, I respond to him, and I don't turn him off. And that's a good way to apply what we've learned here today. Yes? Do you think those people at that time recognized the judgments as coming from the hand of God, or do you think it will be more of an explanation of, you know, it's just the weather, I think they'll know it's God. And again, if you go back to chapter 6, verse 16, when they say, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of wrath has come. And I think by them saying that, they're acknowledging the fact, again, that they know who's doing it and where it's coming from. Yeah, I think they know that this is the judgment of God and not just some kind of natural, freaky thing. Yeah. So, let's keep our hearts sensitive. Keep our hearts sensitive. Explain the difference between hell and the abyss. I think the abyss, that bottomless pit, is just this place that God put these confined demons. I, I don't think that that is the, you know final place for all those who reject Christ or for Satan and his demons. I think the Bible says in the book of Revelation that's called the lake of fire, which is a different place than, than this place here. But I think that God created this bottomless pit just for these demons who did not keep within the boundaries that he told them to, and that's why they were confined there and have been. If, if we plot it out right, they've probably been there for about Four or five thousand years. They're, they're probably pretty upset. The, the thing is, though, again, don't forget as you read through the book of Revelation that though God is using them to fulfill, in a sense, his ultimate plan and purpose, that they are under his direction still. That he tells them, you can't kill anybody, and you can't hurt this, and you can't hurt that. So again, they're always under God's control. Always. Everything we read about in the book of Revelation is under God's control because it goes back to what we studied last week in Revelation 4. Who's on the throne? God is on the throne. Well, even in Job, he let it go so far and that was it. Right, right. Everything's under God's control. Is there meaning to the specificity of the exactness of time? Like you can torture him up to five months specifically or silence in heaven for a half hour. Why do they put in those... Well, again, I'm, I'm a literalist when I read the Bible, when I interpret the Bible, unless it tells me otherwise. So I do believe it's literally a half hour, 30 minutes, and I do believe that it is a literal five-month period because the tribulation period is a seven-year period. So five months is a pretty good chunk of time out of seven years that these demons will be allowed to torture people upon the earth and them not die from it either, don't forget. So... I do take it literally, yes. Well, time is only limited to the earth. There's no time anywhere else, right? We know time in the infinity, I mean, in the universe, there's no time. It's made, it's made up by man. 
Right. For man to be able to understand, yeah, God gives us those tidbits so that we can somehow put it in some kind of conduct. Yeah, because God's outside of time. Yeah, exactly. Yes. The angels that they talk about bound at the river, Right. Those are different ones. Yes. I believe that these are other angels that God is using, again, to just bring forth his plan. And uh, we will look at those angels. Oh, okay, they're in chapter 9, too. Yeah, the sixth trumpet. Yeah, I believe that these are other angels that God is just using to further, you know, that, that judgment upon the earth there. Yeah. And then, um, uh, chapter 9, 7 through 11, you think those are real creatures? Yes. And it's not like uh, the Apache helicopter. No. No, I believe that John is describing these, these confined. They are released from a place called the bottomless pit, and that, that is referred to in Second Peter and Jude, that we can tie that all together. Good stuff. I hope hope you guys are enjoying this. I, I've actually heard that a lot of people aren't coming out on Tuesday night because they don't want to study Revelation. So I feel bad about that, you know, and I guess that's why we don't have a lot of people out on Tuesday night. But I'm hoping that we can get some more out because I'm really trying to practically apply this to our walk with God too. And, you know, again, I think those people may have a, a warped view, and, and I'd like to sort of correct that from them. Um, so, you know, help me out. If you know somebody that would be interested in getting into the Bible and studying it on Tuesday night, I, you guys are, are the best people to go out there and say, hey, you know, why don't you try this Bible study on Tuesday night? I, I would greatly appreciate you getting aware. And I'll, you'll see me Sunday morning handing out more mine cards trying to get people to come, you know, because we would love to see this place filled up. Last week we had 77 here, and now this week we have a fraction of that. So, again, and I, I realize, you know, people can't be here every week, whatever, but... I'd like to see the attendance going up rather than going down. All right, let's close in prayer, and I'll let you guys out of here. It's after eight. Father, thank you so much again for your your word, and Lord, we just pray that we would take to heart the things that we've read and that we've studied tonight and we've been exposed to. And most of all, Lord, we just pray that when you speak to our heart, that, Lord, we would be open and receptive to whatever you're saying to us and whatever you want to do in our lives. Help us not, Lord, to develop a hardened heart as many people have done throughout their time on this earth. Father, encourage us, we pray, and take us home safely tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Great time.